Buenos dias, Allas Pablos. Yes, I'm Carri. I am Carri. And further than that, I will not go. I'm lazy today. Henrik, what the hell is the Flick Lab? The Flick Lab is basically the two of us completely wasting our time and listeners alive while trying to sound extremely smug and smart. Exactly. Perfect. Couldn't have said it better. <laughs> yep. It's also, a, for me, it's a, a short excuse for occasional boozing. And I would also say that this might be the most listened uh, Finnish podcast right now. I so, can't say anything for the most listened Finnish podcast. If if I'm going by the hashtag Finnish podcast, we are leading that. So just well, saying. Well, which is a hashtag you just made like five minutes ago, so. <laughs> Congratulations, we are leading our own hashtag <laughs> This week we shall look at some brutalities in the form of Burn Tomahawk And it is the first movie that was suggested to be in this podcast There was no other than my brother from the same mother Who was thinking of joining this podcast And uh, also this time it didn't really work But we actually prepared in some way for these episodes, and I still have my notes from those like over three months ago, and I'm going by that. So this is the first film that was asked for us to cover here in this podcast, and this is episode 17, yeah. if, I'm, if I'm counted our episodes right. So 17 episodes, people, like Like that's the that's the time in which we will cover your requests if you manage to make any. Exactly. Even yeah. if you are my co-host, so beware. Yep. So you know we are as quick as finished postal office. <laughs> finished postal office. Finished postal office was supposed to the last time send a simple package as a priority one from Yuvaskula to Torun, Poland. Well. My postal code was 8700, and the closest one to that in Finland is 8700. So pretty close, nice try. The package went to Kajaani, then it suddenly went back to Helsinki, and then there was a lot of confusion, and finally we got the package going to the right country. So that's my experience of the current postal services of Finlandia. Yeah, that's the Finnish expertise right there. It pays to save. Including this podcast. <laughs> in Spain, I'm freezing my freaking socks off. I'm now in a room, very small room, trying to keep some kind of warmth with my little mini sausage dog. And I'm not going to the living room because it's like uh, Christmas time outside there. Well, at least 12 Celsius, I would say. So yeah, forget that. Hopefully in two days it will be better. You can only hope and maybe escalate the global climate change. Almost got eaten by a tornado. It wasn't too far from here. Okay, did it have any sharks? <laughs> you have to ask that from Sharknado makers. <laughs> Dear listeners, 
there's going to be a lot of complaining in this episode, so beware. Yeah, well, how is that going to be any different from any other episode you have done? <laughs> like, it, it's it's 17 episodes in in a continuous complaining, and that that now you are actually giving our listeners the warning that there might be some complaining in this podcast. Yeah, I have so far recommended only five movies in this podcast. Yeah, and you complained on each one of those also. So, you know, you gotta give the full picture. It's not all. Roses and hugs and <laughs> and flowers and also not complete agony. That, that is, that is. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this movie was released in 2015. <clears throat> and it was made with an extremely small budget. The budget was $1,800,000 estimated. And this director is very talented... This movie might have been in the shadow of The Hateful Eight that was released on the same year. And it's written and directed by Mr. S. Craig Zahler, if that's how you pronounce that. Have you any experiences of this fella? Unfortunately, no, even though I have been meant to catching up on his films for quite some time. I've seen Bone Tomahawk once before doing this episode, before re-watching it now for this episode. And I have heard uh, a lot of nice things about his two following films, The Brawl in Cell Block 99 and Puppet Master. Yes. Yeah. This uh, guy is a novelist and a musician. And uh, his second script is right here. And his first movie, in fact... Third movie, as far as I understand it, is now in the making. This guy really took his time to make his uh, sort of a breakthrough into the cinema because he sold around 21 to 22 scripts, according to his own words. (laughs) Probably not that many, but who knows? Could be possible uh, entirely. And none of them got any cellulose time. Uh, This script was written in 2011, made in 21 days... And uh, once again, this sounds like a Halloween production, if I may draw that kind of a bridge. Oh, yeah, I'm bringing Halloween to this episode as well. But uh, the fact of the matter is that there is something efficient, there's something really um, that you can make with limited time and limited resources. It shows here once again. It does, and structurally-wise, this also has some similarities with Halloween. In a way that it sets up the threat quite early on Mm -hmm. and then just leaves the threat to the background and just concentrates on building the momentum up until the kind of the last third of the film, which is the violent climax. Yeah, and in a way, I felt that this is the kind of movie that you best enjoy looking the first time, because on the second time you already know uh, what the threat is. Not that you wouldn't know that in Halloween or something, but somehow there is that looming presence that seems to work for me best on the first go. Yeah, my take on the film differs somewhat from that. As becomes evident, I believe, during this episode. We have interesting cast of characters or actors in this one. We have really high-end caliber actors 
regardless of the small budget. But some of them were so really excited to join this project that we have Mr. Kurt Russell as Sheriff Hunt. That's Kurt Russell for people who don't speak weird languages. He is of course known also for The Hateful Eight, Escape from LA, Tango on Cash and stuff. And it still is not taking over the limelight. There's some really good actors and performances and uh, characters here. Uh, there it is. There, there is a lot of established names in this one, even though Kurt Russell is perhaps the most well-known outside of Richard Jenkins. But when it comes to the rest of the cast, like Patrick Wilson is uh, these days is quite well-known, especially in horror circles, thanks to his... Many collaborations with James Wan and yeah. Matthew Fox, even though he has lost the best of the lost momentum that he once enjoyed, still is a relatively well-remembered name, still does quite notable work. And Lily Simons is one of these rising stars. And Matthew Fox and... Uh... David Arquette, probably the best known for people my age from Scream. There's a good selection of vocabulary in this movie. This is written by somebody who knows his way around words. And maybe that's for the best if you're trying to write like a basically a westerner, in which time people spoke in various different ways and constructions I don't know if they would have used exactly these words that you hear here, but it certainly was a pleasure to listen to and look what actually some of the freaking words mean. There's also different kinds of racist and misogynistic tones in the, like, to bring the reality to the show. And there's also some dialogue that makes it abundantly clear that something is not happening. For example, this uh, Native American, uh, Native American makes abundantly clear that this is not about Indians, but it's about the troglodytes. Yep. I believe this movie is based in 1890s, based on the tombstone that you see where Richard Jenkins' character Chicory goes. And time-wise, you can bring up the point that black slavery has just ended. It was uh, legal basically everywhere when uh, the United States of America was founded. It lasted in some capacity still until 1865. Then it was prohibited nationally by the 13th Amendment. And this is shortly after that. About the misogyny, we kind of start off with that. As Arthur and seems to treat her wife like trash, at least in today's terms, calling her a cow. I felt in the beginning that he didn't deserve to get her back, but uh, different times as well. Also, something called sarcasm. Also, but quite rough sarcasm to me. I, I, I wouldn't go that far. Like, it was an obvious joke. Well. And technically speaking, he never called his wife a cow. <laughs> he, he simply made a notion that the cow was more appealing than his wife. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. Well, have you seen that particular cow? I have not. Like, are, are you cow-shaming in this podcast? Is that what you are doing here? Yeah, um, think about the average cow. And I have uh, 
high belief level that this would not please Arthur unless he's into, you know, animals. But this wasn't an average cow. This was a one extremely specific cow that we are talking about here. Hmm. Genetically modified? Well bred, I would say. I see some physical challenges there. Do enjoy that moment with the town cow. That that's that's merely because when it comes to cross species erotica, you are extremely limited in your point of views. Like you are stuck in the old days and the basic heteronormative thinking where there is men and then there are female, and you are completely basically counting out any other forms, for example, cows. But first of all, you need some ladders and at least some small chair to kind of get it on at some moments. That, that's what, what, what about cooking and uh, household keeping? That, that's only if you are a beginner. Oh. Like those are how rookies do it. You want to get into details in this podcast? I, I guess we would actually get banned from the photosphere if I would get into the details. I can already see that our long-time listener and fan of this podcast going by the nickname Definitely Not The Cops is already typing and asking for our contact information on our Facebook page. Mm. Hashtag me cow. <laughs> oh dear. I don't know if I should let this go. I, I think I should kind of continue to kind of roast you to get more information about how this physically happens and what about the uh, higher amount of released methane in the household. But uh, on these modern times, for God's sake, you won't take, take the lady and tie her into the kitchen and housework. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It, it's 2018, you know. Everybody's a free spirit these days. So when it comes to household and cooking and housework, those fell on you to pull off. That's certain. Mm. I'm just trying to understand today's movie. But, you know... Some things you have to leave to your imagination. However, regardless of all the cows, there are no cigarettes for the good part of this movie. There's one cigar, at least, that appears in near the end, though. But that's it, right? Yeah, that's it. Hmm. To be exactly thorough, the movie starts with uh, David Arquette and the old man that are in the territory of the troglodytes. Oh, somewhere near their territory. They actually, David Arquette and Sid Haig both escaped to the Trolocodite territory after hearing the incoming horsemen. After which they come to this... Uh, yeah, it's hard to say what it actually is. Like, is it a burial ground or right. some ritual circle which they yeah. break? Yeah, let's call but... it a burial circle. Yeah, but Compromise. definitely a holy place Yeah, for these people. After which we have the cow scene, followed by scenes in the saloon, where we meet our sheriff and the uh, assisting sheriff deputy. Right off the bat, we establish that this character, played by Richard Jenkins, is he's not the brightest lid in the shed. And this is actually a kind of a part that is likely hard to pull off you know to get all the timings right you know to get whole the whole posture correctly it's quite of a big plot point but don't know if 
if you found something more than meets the eye in this point? Was there like uh, something that you could see why they specifically made the point that the that Jenkins character is not the brightest bulb in the intelligence spectrum? In many ways, it's to give some levity to this uh, this film and also bring up the humanity in the sheriff's character. Makes the other ones look more smart. That it does also, even though they most likely, I would say, they would not have needed the character of Chigori for that, since their dialogue carries it on its own. But the sheriff hunt still kind of a employing and keeping Chigori around as his deputy is something that can be seen as a form of a good deed for Chigori, giving him a purpose and something that still will keep him afloat within the town. In many ways, all of the characters at some point during this film bring out their good side and They bring out the good in them through their interactions with Chikori. We follow this meeting with Chikori and the sheriff with a heartfelt attempt at procreation. Once again, we are in the saloon and we meet, is it called the Wanderer? This he goes by the name of Buddy. Yeah, just Buddy. Yeah, his, his real name is Purvis. Yeah. In, in this film, but he at, at this point of movie, he calls himself as Buddy. Which which was the Sid Hicks character that got killed off at the beginning of this film. So he's he's presenting himself as his dead friend to kind of keep the low profile and to not be fingered out by Sheriff Hunt on the first meeting. And Sheriff meets this identity theft guy. They have a small chat, shoots him in the leg, and now we have to introduce The Arthur's wife, Arthur's wife, is a doctor also and comes to help in the cell of the sheriff. This injured person. This is the last moment we see the wife until the closing moments of the movie. To build the emphasis on their relationship that definitely has a lot of passion and emotion, affection. Arthur reads the letter that he wrote to her when he was away. And he reads it out aloud to himself, just to give you the firm grip on what he actually had written for his wife. Which is followed by... Which is followed by the sniggering laughter, basically, from everyone watching this film. After which it moves on to a more heartfelt territory with the execution of this uh, lonely ranch guy. There was a complaint about killing this black guy because somebody said that it's too obvious or that you shouldn't show this that they should just have the frame where he first gets hacked and then end it there and then have the establishing shot of the barn and that's it and no hacking on the head and all those additional angles i do not agree because the movie establishes that it's not playing nice with the audience and i think that's a good approach And what somebody also complained that the he- doll head that gets the hit looks too much like a doll. Well, eh. didn't bother me. This movie is trying new frontiers, more excessive violence in a westerner. I like the line, why are you in my breakfast? 
I should start using that every morning I come to work. Which begs the question, exactly who are you hacking to pieces and adding into your breakfast? <laughs> I, I'm starting to see why we have never touched the Silence of the Lambs or any of the other Hannibal Lecter films here on this podcast. Anything you want to confess about your cooking? Well, even though now it's too late, but I would have to say that you have just combined the previous scene with the next scene that I completely, in a silly fashion, combined together in this podcast, and now I sound like a mass murderer. Yeah, well, it's all proteins. They are good for you. (laughs) Sheriff gets information about this dead stable boy. His name is Bufford. After which they go to the sheriff's office and we can see that also the wife of Arthur has been taken away as well as David Arquette. I'm just gonna call him David Arquette. With the sheriff's other deputy. Yes. Yeah, you should, shouldn't be forgetting Deputy Nick here on this part of the film. Never. Arthur gets the information about the abduction of the wife. And he's all action with the broken leg, and half of the movie is basically listening to his agony with his leg. And here you see the picturing of the times when people were so stubborn, headstrong, that they would risk their life completely to save this innocent lady. Yep, those old, ancient, long, long forgotten times, which completely in no way actually hold true in today's world good old times what, yeah is that what you're trying to imply there curry yeah i'm trying to imply how it's completely logical of course to romanticize 1890 when everyone was likely smelling like a pig had a shower maybe let's throw once a week But everything was more complicated and diseases and uh, everybody knows that. So, no, I wouldn't romanticize those times too much. And people got killed, as you see in these movies. Then again, you know, this is once again, you know, I mean, we have talked about this twice before the way how you and me differ. Oh, no. In some ways, how I'm the more feeling-based of the two of us and you are the more rational one. So to me, kind of Arthur's decision here is extremely clear since he's wandering off to save his loved one. Yeah, and he should have never left. That much is clear. I don't know. I mean, in the end, Arthur is the one who actually pulls it through. Just barely. Just barely, but still. By a chance. But still pulls it through and manages to save two people. Hmm. Throughout this film. Also, in many ways, this is kind of a... There can be seen the theme of a modern man or today's man kind of a letting go of some of some of the essence that he carries over as a modern male. Like in the beginning of the film, Arthur is the one who at least tries to be open about his feelings and has written this really heartfelt letter to his wife, which he is somewhat ashamed of reading to her since it's so intimate and so much about him. And uh, throughout this movie, Arthur suffers extremely a lot physically by proxy of his leg. And then at the final stretch, 
he kind of embraces that pain, works through all that pain, and commits all these acts of savagery by becoming this person who uses this violence and is not so much about about the feelings and the softer side that he has portrayed at the beginning of the film he is able to save his wife and the deputy chigori and still the percentages would be highly against him making that heroic saving of his wife in the ending so well anyway i did really much enjoy some of the smarter people in this movie that were making rational choices and kind of out of necessity there was somebody that said it quite well that people do not use logic people do not use their brain until it's absolutely necessary and nothing else works that's when it comes to play maybe this is one of those situations but we're talking about sheriff after all if he wants to stay alive he better look at the probabilities Yeah, then again, I would make the case that Arthur has the most reason to actually go on to this rescue mission. For the sheriff, it's basically saving his deputy, which is like his employee, and also some notion of him having to do that as, as the town sheriff and as a representative of the law. But to him, the drive is mostly loyalty to his deputy and also this feeling of the feeling of responsibility that he has to bring out uh, since he is the sheriff. For Chikori, it's, I would guess, part of being the deputy, but also loyalty to Sheriff Hunt. And for John Bruder, it's basically just a gentleman-ish pride. Or just the boss that he is able to kill the Indians, because he did that before. Uh, that also, but yeah, when it comes to Broder, it's two-sided. Does he go to the joint rescue party just out of bigotry and this drive to shoot just a couple of more Indians? Or is that the more of a the gentleman aspect of his character? It might be a mix of all of those. It's a guy who says that he's the only one that is able to contribute something worthwhile here. He, he probably actually believes that, as he says he does. So there's the skill aspect, the pride aspect, the boast aspect, I would say. That is, but still, basically, none of these characters join in this rescue mission for logical reasons. They are all driven by emotional reasons a feeling based decision making which is strongest with Arthur who is the one who is going to save his wife yeah you could say that but it's also the sheriffs and the deputies responsibility to look into this and find out who and where they are and what kind of a threat they are to the town or then they could have just stayed behind with the pretense of protecting the town from the future attacks and just wait for the cavalry to arrive and take the matters on their own hands. Yeah, this particular situation needed haste, so it's more of an emotional decision for sure. And they pay a big price for that. I'm not sure if this uh, expedition was worth it. There are only one of the people who leave survives, at least until the end credits, plus the wife. So And the deputy Chigori. 
Oh yeah. Yeah, two of the rescuers managed to pull it through. Mm. Okay, three survive by a threat, two people die. Patrick Wilson, may I applaud you for playing the agony parts. You're good at it. If you're listening to this podcast, if I ever need any agony sound tapes, I will call you. And there's a lot of that, maybe 10 minutes of just... Sounds. It is Patrick Wilson's character that is the most prominent aspect of the hardships and the suffering that the rescue party has to go through. The toughest role. I very much enjoyed the night scenes when they're next to the fire, just chit-chatting and wondering how everything is going to turn out. And this is building the mood and the atmosphere really well. For most of the runtime of the movie, we do not know really anything about troglodytes. We know roughly that they shoot arrows and they dress like aboriginals. That's about it. You just see them for like a half a second in the beginning of the movie and that's it. You use a lot of imagination before you get to the actual antagonists. And this works to the advantage of the movie. There's a lot of moments where we just wait for them to arrive. We hear different kind of noises. We are, at least I was, a lot excited on my edge. Just waiting for that moment. And then it finally comes, quite suddenly. There's also these possible thief characters that Matthew Fox's brooder just straight up shoots. Uh, Once again, calculating that it's possibly a smaller harm to them that they just shoot them outright without any kind of discussion. Well, that's hard to say what could have happened, but this was his decision and I can respect that. Respecting shooting the unarmed men. That's what this podcast is all about. Yeah, exactly. Welcome. Yeah, well, to Bruder's defense, he most likely was right on his his decision or his call that basically the two men approaching the camp during the night time were some kind of a, a front of a raiding party or scouts. Yeah, if two random people would just come to my camp in the middle of the freaking night, in the middle of nowhere, I would raise a lot of red flags. But, you know, you can't really know because the guy just shot them, so... But, yeah. Yeah, so if Gary ever goes to camping, just remember to be extremely careful because he's likable to shoot you. Once when I was camping, I woke up at 3 or 4 a.m. in the middle of the night Two sounds of what I thought was a bear. I was with a friend. We were freaked out as hell. Finally, after like 15 minutes when the noise wasn't so strong, we went outside and realized there was no one there. And the noise was probably coming from the other side of the lake. We still don't know what it was, but we suspected it it was horny teenagers. So never trust your hearing. And the lesson number two out of this is Never trust your feelings or your beliefs. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't vouch on the second lesson. Unless your beliefs are based on facts. Once again, you, you still need both. You, you need logic and you need feelings to make the right decisions. So which one of us would have shot the bear or what was suspected to be a bear? I actually was half expecting that your story would end that. I once went to camping and... Then I woke up at night at 4 p.m. and I shot a guy. <laughs> <laughs> you, you really let everyone down there. 
And had I followed my emotions there, I would have been in a big trouble. Maybe bigger trouble than having the bear outside. Well, that only depends on if you would have followed through with your cooking advice and just eat the bodies. <laughs> no, we had plenty of eggplants, so hunger was not an issue. Okay, but that does kind of give the explanation on why Jason Voorhees always kills the teenagers around Camp Crystal Lake. That that may be the answer to the age-old question. <laughs> because he thinks they're bears. Yeah, or because they wake him up at 4 a.m. Like, I, I would be pissed at that time, too. Poor Jason. Arthur's leg gets into a worse condition, and he's left considerably behind the others, while the others get to the headquarters of the troglodytes. There is a scene where Chicory straightens up the bones of Arthur. I was expecting the wide shot away from the scene and then get this... Ah! But I didn't get that. Oh... That was unexpected and maybe fresh and not so cliche. I was also expecting the film to actually show on close-up the straightening of the bone. Uh-huh, yeah. Totally no problem in this movie. I don't know. I mean, basically, Bone Tomahawk has a lot of fame as being extremely violent and gruesome film. Like, that is the one aspect that everyone seems to be tracking out whenever talking about this film is the violence and how the last third of the film is incredibly gruesome and violent and extremely hard to watch and you know i really don't see it here okay i realized that there were moments when i was pulling away from the screen like and making these faces that are better probably to live out of this podcast social media pages i could feel the pain i had feelings surprise but like the, also this, the... is a, this is your great failing <laughs> here welcome to bone tomahawk but also the ending works so well as it does because there is no excessive violence really before we get to the ending it's all yeah, well... bi- it's all building like halloween for forever and then we get the slaughter party okay because to me mentioning the violence of bone tomahawk is pretty much just hype that has not that much anything to do with with the film that i saw because to me bone tomahawk is actually surprisingly tame especially considering it's kind of a fame well if we class this as a westerner or something aching to that for a westerner i would say that This is shockingly violent and brutal and gruesome. Are you well, saying that that's not the case? I can see the argument when made for a westerner, but as a movie outside of a western genre, I, I wouldn't say that this is that violent. Or as a cannibal film, which this also is, especially on the Finnish DVD box art, which outright states that it's Kurt Russell against cannibals. So on both of those regards, I would say that this is a rather tame and non-violent film. In every occasion, it depends entirely on what you are likely to compare it on. Like, I know you as a horror film buff, so you maybe compare this to cannibal holocaust, which, which you haven't seen, but something aching to this section of cinema. Yeah, that could be, but... 
I, I also feel that there there is also pure action films that have been more violent than what Bone Tomahawk. Yeah, let's just say that it's pretty violent anyway, and it has a memorable moment of hacking a guy into two parts. Which you are not being shown that much, actually. Maybe, but it's shown enough. I would say that, okay, I know I'm going on to the individual examples here, but if we go with The Passion of Christ by Mel Gibson, on that notion, even the Christian movies are more violent than Bone Tomahawk. Mm, yeah, if we get to the uh, violence competition round, and you could easily pick something that is more violent than Bone Tomahawk. I believe some of them were filmed really in a gruesome fashion to really make the audience like feel that fucking pain. But the pain works the best because it's being uh, held until the very end moments of the film. Could be. I didn't get that effect from this okay. movie. During my first viewing of the film, and I still am relatively surprised on how low the violence is, on my opinion. Okay, considering of making this a huge sticking point and making 35 episodes of podcasts about this for you. The violence in Bone Tomahawk. No, no, no not really. <laughs> we can find some other aspects also in the film that might be more interesting. The atmosphere is very realistic. Uh, perhaps this is what also contributes to the pain of the ending for me. It's a very, very slow burn, and it doesn't affect the enjoyment at all, on the contrary. And yeah, as said before, I think the the pacing is what makes the violence click. There's chemistry on the characters, we we care about them. Did you figure out how the pipe works when the when it's inserted into the sheriff's mouth? First they put the pipe in, and then they whack him with another object, so... How was the pipe needed in this moment? Or was it some kind of a drug that they fed him? I couldn't figure that out. The way I saw it was that it was merely used to choke the sheriff to cause nausea and pain so that he would kind of struggle less because he has something shown down his throat at the moment. Mm. As an object, it does not serve any alternative purpose to kind of just being one instrument that is used to hurt the sheriff so that he would struggle a little less because now he has to very largely concentrate on the pain. An entertaining part at the closing moments was to count how many of these troglodytes are still alive and you're kind of biting your teeth whether they will get rid of them all or some will still remain. Yep, could you stop doing that? Maybe you want to go to the next room. Yes. Yeah, apparently my dog was hungry listening to this episode. They get the sheriff and the deputy locked inside. We have this gruesome scene of cutting the guy in half. And they play the, the trick on Drago Dyson. There's some sedative in the deputy's items. And they get the count of Drago down to seven. Yeah, basically it's Arthur's wife's opium, which they have stashed inside the flask. And that's what they use to poison. Two of the troglodytes with one of the poisoning getting so severe that it's actually fatal. Gruesome moment where Arthur is cutting out basically the sound pipe of the troglodyte, wondering if it's jewelry. So I was wondering 
why would he would he really go through the trouble? I guess he really thought it was jewelry, but then found some other use for it. Yeah, Arthur at the final stretch of the film is quite quick to figuring out on much of these more difficult <clears throat> concepts. For example, the messaging mechanism of the trocolorites. And this basically gives the upper hand that solves the whole conflict of the movie in the end. Pretty much. Meanwhile, Chikori is giving the speech on this uh, flea circus. It's a moment that the director holds for a very long time. This is like a two-minute moment. And uh, in the end, the wife of Arthur gives out this straight-out lie to give him some kind of solace, but a moment of happiness in the midst of total destruction. So-called white lie, as they say. Yeah, it's once again, this is basically the moment for Arthur's wife where she gets to show a little bit more of her humanity and the goodness of his heart through the way how she interacts with Chikori. Kind of the, like I said earlier, one of the running themes of this movie. Every character showcasing a better side of themselves by their interactions and how they react to Chikori. After which the sheriff gets what he doesn't deserve and his drinking bottle is shoved down his hole in the stomach that was just made there seconds earlier. After which he instructs the rest of the cast to get out of the cave, give him the gun to finish off possibly the remaining troglodytes that might be wandering around in the vicinity. This tribe definitely has a lot of uh, respect for women. Hmm? Like they are only used as mere objects of breeding, as far as it's interpretable for me. Yeah, that's once again genre staple mark, which is the weird cannibal tribe or family of cannibals or whatever it is in each individual film. And they're kind of a quite harmful and violent relationship to the woman. Yeah, would you say that this is a cliche? In a way, I would say this is a trope. Mm. You can kind of see the same mechanics in, well, not in the same extent, but I would still say that partly, for example, in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and basically the whole family of hillside redneck cannibals in the hills have eyes was based on rape. Like that was the breeding mechanism that had started the whole family of cannibal killers. And also during the earlier entries in the cannibal genre, the women usually are the ones getting it the worst. Samantha, Arthur, and Chikori get out to the burial ground. They cross it over again, which you can see as the reference to the beginning when the thieves do it as well. The ending leaves it open. What's going to happen to these characters? We hear the gunshots, which, in my interpretation, are coming from the cave. Sheriff shooting down two additional troglodytes, leaving still, I believe, is it one troglodyte chilling around. And it's indeed open. You never know what happened then. But there's hope left at the ending credits. There's quite a lot lot of hope at the end of this film. Like, this is nowhere as cynical 
or downerish as as it could have been. Then on the other hand, when you listen to it, it seems like these gunshots could be coming from outside, but who really knows? If that's the case, it probably isn't a troglodyte, unless they, well, it actually could also be that the case if they somehow got to manage the gun of Bruder, and if there were any bullets left. You know, open-ended, I believe. Yeah, I never got the feeling from this film that it was that open-ended. Okay. Like I can see the open-endedness in a mechanical level. The way the film ends, it's if needed, it would be extremely easy to just pick off from where this one ends and make a sequel from that moment onwards and simply, for example, play, for example, the statement that the film never made it clear how big the tribe is. Unfortunately, at least for now, the dreams of a sequel were crushed away. The budget was only the minuscule, as mentioned, million and eight hundred thousand dollars. International box office suggests that the movie only got back four hundred and eighty-one hundred thousand. There is the possibility that the distribution may have been limited, but also if you're trying to battle Quentin Tarantino around the same time, that could be an issue. Overall, releasing Kurt Russell Westerner at the time of Hateful Eight is kind of a dangerous move. Yeah, I, I would have waited a little bit longer and released the film after Hateful Eight has exited theaters. Yeah. But then again, when it comes to movies these days, the business models are quite complex. And they keep on changing from one movie to another. So in that sense, it's hard to say how much, for example, this movie made in the end. And how much the movie was banking on the initial box office. About the words of this film. First is H-A-L-E, Hale. This is of a person, especially an elderly one, who is strong and healthy. Sulk, more common, but... uh, Sulk is to be silent, morose, and bad-tempered, out of annoyance or disappointment. For example, he was sulking over the breakup of his band. There's the word bushwhack. It's to live or travel in wild or uncultivated country. So if you go bushwhacking, remember that there may be bears that are revealed to be only horny teenagers. Somnambulist. S-O-M-N-A-M-B-U-L-I. SD. Somnambulist is apparently a sleepwalker, also known as noctambulist. Some people have made the mistake of thinking that the antagonists of this movie, the troglodytes, that this word is actually a name for the tribe. But no, no, no. This is a word that is used for a person who lives in a cave, especially in prehistoric times. Then there is convalescence, time spent recovering from an illness or medical treatment, recuperation. Favorite performance of this movie is, I would say, Kurt Russell. To me, that would be Matthew Fox and John Pruder. I, even though all the performances are extremely strong here, I still felt that Pruder was perhaps the most, well, not likable, but enjoyable character. And Fox kind of knocks it out of the park. When you think of this movie, what's the first image that pops to your brain cells? I don't have a specific shot, and the 
movie spends a lot of time just walking and riding horses in dry land. But what I remember the best about the movie overall is Arthur's character tagging behind and the others moving in front and still trying to be nice to Arthur and his project of saving his loved one, even in this particularly unhelpful condition. And some of the night scenes. To me, that still shot from the behind of the rescue party as the four of them are riding side by side to that dusk. Kind of a legendary shot. Kind of a legendary shot. You you could also say kind of a Western cliche. Mm. But I am a man who can acknowledge my love, love for certain cliches. Certain cliches are needed in this life. Imagine if all the movies would be completely original in every single aspect. That would be extremely great in many ways, but basically these days it's completely impossible in any form of art and media, or I would even make the case that in life itself. Well, life, life in the essence is a cliche. Yeah, and I'm acknowledging here, by the way, that I like some kind of nods or occasional repetitions that brings you that kind of a familiarity feeling in good or bad well what is your favorite death scene for me it's cutting their friend in half at the end oddly enough to me it's that scene where they have camped during the night and it's not even actually a death scene necessarily like it's extremely hard to tell if anyone died during this scene, but they have camped for the night and Broder has set up his alarm system and they are all trying to sleep. Broder is reading his book and all of a sudden there is that jingle as the alarm system goes off and Broder, without even stopping to think about the moment, just drops his book, draws his gun and shoots at the direction of the noise. You hear a coyote whimpering right after that shot, so it's even completely possible that Bruder missed, and it does not even count as a death scene. Mm -hmm. But I did find that moment, due to the extremely great acting from everybody's part, and by the way how Bruder reacted on that moment, I found that scene extremely funny. That was one of those scenes that I stopped and rewinded and rewatched <laughs> like three times in a row on my first viewing of this film. It's a nice humorous moment where Chikori just announces his dislike for Bruder, basically saying that he doesn't believe that he's as smart as he says. But then this he's the first one to wake up to the noise and do something about it, but in this uh, comical and non-solution-ish kind of way. And the coyote not confirmed, not confirmed. It could be the long-lost poodle of Broder that he just left on the desert by accident. It could be, or it could be just two coyotes and Broder managed to kill the other one, and the other one is running away scared, like that could have also happened. Impossible to say since you don't actually see the aftermath. My favorite quote would most likely be 
when they have pretty much started their little adventure, and somebody of the characters says, I know the world is supposed to be round, but I'm not so sure about this part. It sounds very Chikurian. Yeah, this is a movie that has a lot of great quotes. Mm-hmm. Like, this is extremely quotable film on its own right. Yeah, for me, my pick most likely from a numerous, extremely well-written dialogue exchanges still would be Bruder's comeback to Chikori when Chikori questions if Bruder is the smartest one of the group and Bruder shoots him down by stating that smart men don't get married, which is a God-honest fact (laughs) and worse to live by. I like that and I wondered if somebody would actually out such words during those times. I don't know about during those times, but someone should definitely out those words during these times. Yeah. Yep. Some lessons are valid throughout the centuries, and this is one of them. Smart men don't get married. Also liked the wife, the Samantha, saying this is why frontier life is so difficult. Not because of the Indians or the elements, but because of the idiots. Also, yeah. Also words of truth right there. Or say goodbye to my wife. I'll say hello to yours. But in fact, in fact, in fact, when I returned to these notes after three plus months, I read this quote and I wondered, what the hell have I written here? Like, if you take this some other way out of that particular context, this could be really inappropriate. Yeah, (laughs) it it could. But that just goes to show you the importance of the content. Yeah, I should make some points about YouTube comments because I like to read trash. There are some gems sometimes. For example, it was an imaginary quote. Where did Nick go? Oh, he had to split. (laughs) And then there was uh, somebody commented about the cutting in half of Nick that it's difficult but not impossible to fab to. Well, I'll leave that up to this commenter. Well, Henrik, 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 Henrik. Would I recommend Bone Tomahawk? It's definitely not impossible to fab to. Uh, There are some really good cinematography here. You never get tired of looking at the film. The realisticity of the atmosphere contributes to the fact that I am very... Tied to the screen, great performances, and most of all, the fact that they are able to, you know, build the atmosphere once again, because I love this building of atmosphere just with mere words and things that you don't see on screen, all the off-screen suggested events help this movie immensely in its finale. There are some problems, though. Like I said, I would be doing some complaining here, so I really have to complain about the great camera work. I don't know why they had to do that. It's so good sometimes. I should also complain about the ending that once again builds the atmosphere and then kind of crushes and explodes that kind of tension in the end and then releases it. That's once again a question for the director. Sailor. Sailor. Sailor man. Greg Sailor. Why did you have to execute it so well? I mean, I mean, come on. 
we have had so many shitty movies in this podcast that I don't know why why did you have to change the mood all of a sudden like this. But hey, works for me. So would I recommend Bone Tomahawk? All thong- all tongues and things considered, I would not recommend Bone Tomahawk for the faint-hearted, but I would recommend it otherwise. Great movie. I, on the other hand, I would not recommend it as a porn or fapping material in general, but it does get a flying recommendation as a film. To me, the violence is way overhyped and something that you definitely should not watch this film for. This is not something for the gore hounds in the audience, but it is well-made film. It's well shot, it has magnificent performances, great characters, extremely well-written dialogue, and quite a lot of heart in its core. So this is a worth of a recommendation. It's well-made film all around, and I could believe that, or I can see that this will end up being a cult film. It might just kind of already be in some attributes. I definitely think it will get there if it's not there already. What's the best scene? I would, as a my pick, I would go with the flea circus scene. To me, it's one of the most humane and most heartfelt scenes of this movie. There is a lot of nice scenes, a lot of scenes that have a lot of humanity, but this one being so near at the end, at such of a dark moment, and Chikori showcasing here once again that childish belief in in something that's that logic would repute uh, almost instantly and the rest of the crew just going along with it. To me, that really kind of uh, hammers down what these characters are all about deep down. So there, the flea circus scene. That's my pick. That's my pick as well, because that really stands out in the end, because of all the aforementioned reasons. The audio landscape is really minimalistic, as we have noticed. There's Barely any music. Is there any music? I didn't notice any music, that's for sure. There is some, but not that much. At some points, individual scenes are being elevated by a background soundtrack. The usage of soundtrack is being kept very limited, and the soundtrack in itself is its a slow burner with not that many notes so that you would actually pay attention to the soundtrack. In this movie, the soundtrack is very easy to miss while watching the film. It is, and it seems that it's working to the movie's advantage. The movie has the realisticity to it, thanks to the lack of music, I would argue. You could argue easily against it, but... uh, the fact that there is less going on audio-wise, I think it contributes to the atmosphere being so brutally realistic. And even on the moments of tension, you don't get your ba-dum, 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 music. And it 
it does tie into the minimalistic nature of this film. Yeah. If this movie would have those high notes or those moments when the music really ramps up and kind of a comes out of the scene, to give you an easy example in any of the Marvel movies, where you definitely get those moments where the music comes off the movie and becomes part and a kind of an entity of its own. Like if this movie would have the soundtrack acting like that and have that kind of a soundtrack moments in it, I would say it really would hurt the film and the atmosphere that it so carefully builds throughout its running time. Yeah. But often when you come out of your average Marvel film, it's like your ears are completely numb and you have to recover from that shockwave blast of action and ripping off parts of the earth and throwing things around and explosions that it takes some time to recuperate. But uh, that's my take. My endless love for Marvel movies. There are some nice ones. I like the Ant-Man in the sense of it being uh, still a super hero story which uh, is really a genre that we could fight about if you love it maybe in a future episode mm. one westerner that i for some reason really always liked a lot is mckenna's gold have you seen this one mm, which one was that well it's a gregory peck once again and in that case no in the end they go to this huge crater type of thing and they have a map and they think there is gold and there and they find nothing and I think the ending is really tragic but I can't remember it anymore. Yeah, I'm not a westerner that I would have seen myself. When it comes to western cinema with Gregory Peck in it, that's kind of an uncharted territory for me. I'm more of a John Wayne and Clint Eastwood guy. One that stands out for me is that also in this movie you have Telly Savalas, and I'm a big fan of this actor. Everything he does is worth a watch. However, I think we have this movie. Would you improve anything in the film? No, I would leave this film as it is. Yeah, I also just can't think of anything. Everything comes together in this film. But how is the rewatchability for this for you? You've seen it a couple of times. Did you still enjoy it like in the old days when you first popped it on? I did. To me, it played very much on the fact that, as mentioned, to me, the violence at the end of the film did not come off as any kind of a shocking moment. And I was actually half expecting it, thanks to the finished DVD box art. So in, in that sense, there was very little kind of these big surprises that this movie could have offered and due to that what I enjoyed on the first going with this film I could still enjoy very much now on my second viewing and there was no this element of surprise that would be lost to me on repeated viewings yeah so I watched this like three months ago and now I watch it again but with the haphazard concentration since I've been a little bit busy here, but this might have contributed to not feeling as engaged with it as the last time around. Or just the fact that I just watched it like three months is not such of a long time after all. To add to the music, I believe it was Saler himself who did the 
whatever music is in this movie. Uh, Zahler has his own band as well. It's called the Realm Builder. Heavy metal band. Listen to a few tracks. I guess it's okay for people who are usually in that sort of music. Zahler's favorite films are The Wild Bunch, 1969, 2001 A Space Odyssey, not made in the same year of course, The Bridge on the River Kwai from 1957. I'm still yet to watch The Bridge on the River Kwai, but sounds like a movie worth of my limited time here in this podcast. The synopsis is, after settling his differences with the Japanese POW camp commander, a British colonel cooperates to oversee his men's construction of a railway bridge for their captors while oblivious to the plan by the Allies to destroy it. And uh, this is a, like a classic. Very positive remarks. It's like two hours and 41 minutes long. Have you seen it? I've seen it some years ago. Okay. Haven't rewatched it recently. Yeah. To my great shame, but what can you do with a limited time? Mm. To keep yourself up at night and watch some more movies with the bloody eyes. That's what I'm already doing for this podcast, so... <laughs> I, I, I would say that anymore staying late at night and trying to crash through the workload on the second day would just mean that the blood vessels on my eyes would actually just pop. Well, I will give your blood vessels a little break because the next recording is over a week from now. So, with new bloodshed eyes until the next week. Next week we have Komissario Palmun erähdys. <laughs> Inspector Palmus error. If I can find this movie, it's a little hard out here in Spain. But the Finnish Independence Day is looming on the horizon. And this is the movie that has been the most respected by critics as of uh, Paul as of late. And we hope to bring it to you. And if not, there's always the 35 versions of The Unknown Soldier. So I think we'll be we'll be safe with this one. I don't know if safe is the right word to use for our listeners. Of our listeners in this podcast, seeing that we are planning to cover a Finnish film next. I know your romanticized approach to Finnish cinema. So I tried to be nice to you and pick the best one so to avoid any kind of pain that you might suffer are we that bad at filmmaking we have good cinematography but sometimes we have really terrible films we are not that bad filmmaking as i make it appear here yeah yeah we we have pretty stellar history in film and we still make a decent film these days the problem mostly is that the best of the films usually are something for the little funded and somewhat indie market. And when it comes to the mainstream cinema, there is been quite a lot of darts during these recent years. Could it be the problem that we have a lot of theater-based actors that do their theater in the cinema as well, and these characters are so often so overplayed or just simply badly played in the sense of cinema circle that I have trouble concentrating on it. It takes me out, but little by little we are learning this. I would say that we have known how to make film for ages already. 
Well, you will get a lot of theater acting and what would be today considered quite overplayed acting in the next one. But fear not, at least in the, my opinion and when I saw it like 369 years ago, it was a really solid Finnish thriller. I noticed you put the emphasis on word Finnish. And that's where we are. We are finished. Thanks again for joining us. As usual, you can find us, Henrik Ware. On the deepest levels of hell. Also known as Facebook. Yeah. And the rest of the extended internet, known as Twitter. And where else are we? Instagram. Google it. Thanks again. And we have had a lot of new listeners, as I have pointed out in the previous time we recorded. So thank you. Let's make it from the 320 listeners in a few days to 32,000 listeners by December. That would be a good Christmas present for both of us. And then monetize the hell out of it. Yeah, the Patreon texts are already in the making. <laughs> Sayonara. See you the next time. Ootkohan nyt brother, ykkönen, kakkonen, brat. Siinä on semmonen tota, tyyppi, joka niinku palkkamurhaa toisia tyyppejä. Jos kaikki muutata tietenkin pettää, niin voidaan repästä oikein kunnolla ja katsoa niin panssarilaiva Potemkin. Se on Oho. vuoden 1925 neuvostoliittalainen mykkäelokuva. Voitaisiin käydä se Suomen itsenäisyyspäivän kunniaksi. <laughs> Sillä saataisiin kavereita. Next week we have... Grandpa doesn't remember. No, jos haluat mennä täysin aivottomalla linjalla, niin Oletko se minkälainen pulkkinen mies ollut koskaan? Hyi helvetti. <laughs>